You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. If everyone could just stand for the reading. Uh, Today's reading is from Psalm 30. You can find it on page 486. I will exalt you, Lord, because you have lifted me up and have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from among those going down to the pit. Sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. When I was secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you showed me favour, you made me stand like a strong mountain. When you hid your face, I was terrified. Lord, I called to you. I sought favour from my Lord. What gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. You turn my lament into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. This is the word of the Lord. It's an appropriate psalm for Tan to read for us. We've got him back after a month. He was uh, close to going down to the pit, but God has restored him. So, praise God for that. And praise God for the book of Psalms. I just love preaching from the book of Psalms. Um, My favorite series that we've preached here over the years is definitely the Gospel of John. That took a couple of years to get through and just was life-changing for me and remains my favorite book of the Bible if I had to choose one. But um, spending the beginning of the year in the book of Psalms is something that I love to do. So we're going to continue to do that through summer to the end of February, got some really good guest preachers as well as uh, I'll, get another, I'll get another couple of weeks uh, to have a go at it as well. So if you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, um, you should be. Uh, you should start today. And, um, and the brilliant thing about the Psalms is that uh, you can be blessed richly by just reading one each day. And uh, you could do that before you even get out of bed in the morning and definitely before you start doom scrolling for the day, okay? You will experience life and health and prosperity if you do that. And um, the book of Psalms is just about in the middle of your Bible. If you turn to the middle, you're probably going to hit it. It's 150 songs or poems um, in five different books and written over about a period of a thousand years, the scholars tell us. Um, compiled over a thousand years and then given to us as a gift, uh, an expression of um, something that we sometimes miss in our kind of church, in our tribe, the, the, the emotional, experiential um, description of life and faith. And uh, uh, this, today's psalm, Psalm 30, is attributed to David. We don't know exactly the context in which he wrote it. There's a few different ideas about that, um, which we can get to a little bit later on. But David's not the only author of the psalms. He's the most famous and probably the most prolific. But you've also got psalms written by Moses and Asaph and the sons of Korah and Solomon and Ethan. And if you grew up in the 80s, your favorite author and mine is He-Man. So, or Heman, Heman is probably the, the correct way to pronounce it, but I like, I like He-Man. So, um, nothing by Shearer as far as we know. It's an 80s joke, did it? No? Okay. Um, so, anyway, the, the psalm that we've got today, Psalm 30, written by David. And uh, as you sort of look into the psalms, you get to learn the different genres of the psalms. It's just like... When, again, if you're an 80s kid, maybe even a 90s kid, if you used to go into Sanity Music Store, you'd see, you'd go through the different genres, you would skip the like popular music section and go to the hardcore, yep, 
We're all on the same page? Yep. So, well, that's the same with the Psalms. There's about like maybe 10 different genres of Psalms. And, um, but one of the helpful ways that I've come across that sort of car- ca- categorizes this really simply is it was put together by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Uh, with a name like that, he's got to be a nerd. And he was an o- Old Testament scholar. Um, theologian, and he, he put the, the Psalms into three categories. He, he categorized them according to kind of experience, the experience of the psalmist, the songwriter. And so he, he described it like this. There are Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation or reorientation. So you've got orientation Psalms like Psalm 1 or Psalm 8 probably, where it's just everything's right in the world. The psalmist is safe and secure in the knowledge of who God is and who he is in light of who God is. And they're just, they're, they're, they're descriptive of life as it should be with God as king and us as his people. Then you've got psalms of disorientation. And this is probably by far the most when it comes to the psalms. Psalms of lamentations, psalms of distress, psalms like 13, Psalm 13, like why have you abandoned me, God? Uh, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Um, so these experiences of disorientation, the world should be like this, but it's like this, and it sucks. And then there are psalms of, of new orientation, where, where the, generally what's happened is the, the, the author, the artist, has gone through the experience of moving from orientation through disorientation, through suffering or, or whatever, through to new orientation, to actually a place better off than where they began. They've matured, they've learned, they've grown as a result. And this Psalm 30 probably sort of properly fits in new orientation, but it actually gives us a taste of each of those three movements, all in the one psalm. So just when when you're doing your little reading through the psalms, maybe a psalm each day, that could be one thing you have in mind. What what is this psalm? Where where is the artist coming from? you do this with songs, right? You listen to a song on the radio you, and you think, what, what was the artist? I mean, if it's a decent song, you're thinking, what, what is, where's the artist coming from here? What's the emotion that they're expressing? Are they in love or are they broken because they've fallen out of love or been cheated on or whatever? So it's the same with these psalms. There's an emotional movement, an expression that's good to know if you're going to get what they're talking about. So... Let's jump in, but we're going to jump in right into the middle. Because this, like, like a lot of Psalms, this isn't moving in, the, in the, the, the kind of Western way that we're familiar with, beginning, middle, end. This is, this is um, giving us in the middle of the Psalm the kind of the climax, the main point, and then it moves outwards from the middle. So that's what we're going to do. We'll, we'll jump right into the middle in verse 6 to 10. David He says this, when I was secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you showed your favor, you made me stand like a strong mountain. When you hid your face, I was terrified. Lord, I called to you. I sought favor from my Lord. What gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. This is what's going on for David. He's having an an experience here, reflecting on an experience here that I think everyone, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can relate to. What he's saying is, when when things were going well, when I was secure, another, another translation is, when I was prosperous, everything was just fine. Everything was just right. But what we know from experience, I think you could relate, is that when things are fine, when things are secure, when things are prosperous, we tend to, almost without deviation, fall into a kind of cruise control mode, right? We get comfortable, we get complacent, familiarity breeds contempt, and we find ourselves drifting away from like a close walk with the Lord. Am I, am I the only one? Someone? All right, you guys are with me. All right. This is true probably of all relationships. 
but specifically and most pointedly true when it comes to our relationship with God. So I hear people pray all the time for safety, security, prosperity, and those are fine things to pray for, but what we need to remember is this. This is the truth. God is more committed to your holiness than your happiness. Right? That's his, God's main idea when he looks at you, his creature, his son, his daughter. He has abundant unconditional, limitless love for you as you are right now. Not a future version of you, the one that doesn't turn up to church hungover or whatever. He, he doesn't love that future version of you that's cleaned up and, and put together. He loves you now, right now, but as the old kind of cliche saying goes, he loves you too much to leave you that way, right? He, he has a vision for you which is being shaped more and more into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the fullest, most mature, complete, um, perfect example of humanity, and that's what God wants for each one of us. So, if that's true, God is, is too committed to you, loves you too much, just to let you coast and drift away from co- close communion with you, uh, with him. He's more interested, more committed to your holiness than your happiness. And so, this is what God does with David. He takes him from that place of security, strong as a mountain, that place of prosperity, and he afflicts him. And he does it in love. Here's how David experiences it. Ready? He says in verse 4 to 5, Sing to the Lord, you faithful ones, and praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. The experience that jolted, that broke David out of that cruise control, out of that place of complacency, was the experience of God's anger. And we don't know exactly what he's referring to here. He's almost certainly referring to an historical event. There are lots of guesses. To be honest, it could be a whole bunch of different things because David was constantly screwing up monumentally. The most popular example, obviously, is, you know, seeing Bathsheba bathing on a roof, getting all worked up about that, uh, sleeping with her, impregnating her, and then having her husband sent off and killed on the battle line. That's a pretty good example of David leaving the way of Jesus, leaving close communion with God, And then God's discipline of him comes through the prophet Nathan and through the death of that child. It could be when uh, David disobeyed God and took a census of the people in Israel and God then gave him a choice. I, I can punish you three different ways. Choose one. It could be a bunch of different things, and it really probably David's not that concerned that we know the specific historical context. We can get the meaning without knowing that. The meaning is God will discipline his children in order to train them to be more like his son. Because God loves us, he won't let us become complacent. And I think if any of us was honest, we would look at our lives, look at our experience of faith, and we would note, if we could do it on a graph, we would note that in the good and easy times, we have had very little by way of spiritual growth, and that the real growth experiences of our lives, including probably our conversion, were precipitated by crisis. And my point this morning is that God will often trigger that crisis for our good. 
The nerds among you will know and be familiar with Charles Spurgeon. He's the prince of preachers. He's a 19th century guy. Uh, his London tabernacle was the biggest church in the world. He, um, he was an incredible mind. He read something like seven enormous books of theology every week. He ran an orphanage for the people of London. He started thousands of movements. I mean, he was just a force and could preach better in his sleep than I will ever get anywhere near. And yet, his whole life he was afflicted with lots of different medical issues and then a constant slathering of depression, crippling depression. Here's what he said about this experience of affliction being his teacher. He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Now, he was not one to court disaster. He didn't pray that God would bring terrible things on his life so that he would be better for it. He said once, I pity the dog that has had to suffer what I have suffered, right? So it's not that very cavalier, like you bring it on, let persecution come that you sometimes hear, particularly among very comfortable, safe Christians. But he did understand this, the economics of suffering and how God uses it for our good. And that's what David is experiencing this psalm. That's the movement of this whole psalm that we're meant to pick up on. God, David is able to praise and thank God because his anger lasts only a moment but his favour for a lifetime. And both of those things work for his good. Now the challenging idea for many of us and maybe even people in this church, is we have experienced the last couple of years a real, I think, resurgence of an understanding of God as a, a, as a good father. We've majored on that. We've done a series on that. Of Jesus as a gentle saviour. We've done, we've done lots of teaching on that, right? O, on the idea that I'm acceptable before God, that God has no reservations whatsoever about looking at me this morning and loving me. Not, not loving a future version of me, but me, even me. So that's good, that's true, praise God. But if that's our only perception of what God, how God feels towards us, then we will have an inadequate view of God. Because God, when God looks at us, He doesn't only experience limitless, warm, fuzzy feelings. He also experiences disappointment and anger. And wrath. This is the complex picture of God that the Bible gives us. He's complex just like you or I. He's complex enough to see you and love you and love you enough to give his son to die for you and do everything possible to have you adopted into his family and he can look at you with disappointment and grief and anger. Let me give you a couple of examples of this because I have heard it said that um, by some that angry God is Old Testament God. It was like when he was in his angsty teenage years and he, he would just smite people and send curses and plagues. But then we, we got into the New Testament and, and, and God became Jesus and he, was just, he just loved cuddling lambs and smiling at us. Emphatically not the case, right? God is complex all through the scriptures, complex enough to both love you and be grieved by you. Let's look at a couple of examples in the New Testament. So, every second week and later on today, we're going we're to share the Lord's Supper together. 
one of the really important aspects of the communion liturgy in the Anglican Church for the last 500 years has been, it has been a, uh, a desire to make sure everyone in every parish, in every church, knows that as they come to the Lord's Supper, God is not messing around. This is not crackers and juice, you know, and good times with Jesus. This is like serious, weighty, um, like something not to be messed with. And the reason that we believe this is because of what Paul says in his most thorough explanation of the Lord's Supper of Communion. It's in 1 Corinthians 11, and here's what he says has been going on in the Corinthian church. There's a bunch of people who are just screwing with the communion. Just screwing with it. So, the rich people are turning up and getting drunk and calling it communion. The poor people are turning up with nothing to share and so not having communion. And Paul is outraged. He's like, he's like, what? When he hears about this, he can't believe it. And here's what he tells him. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, herself. In this way, let them eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, that is, without thinking about it, without reflecting on it, without uh, coming with repentance and contrition, whoever swaggers in and starts getting smashed, or whatever would qualify as unworthy taking of communion, Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for dead. He says, because some of you have been messing around with the Lord's Supper, God has made some of you sick, and he's killed some of you. New Testament God. Jesus, the Jesus one. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. It's a complex sentence. But I think what he's saying is, God, because he loves you and he's merciful to you, doesn't want you to be condemned to hell. And so he disciplines you. He makes you sick. So you stop and think, I need to repent. Maybe even he kills you before you can totally shipwreck your faith so that you're not condemned forever. Hmm. So... Yes, God loves you in a kind of way that you will never even fathom the depths of. And yes, God is disappointed when you leave the way of Jesus, grieved when you make a mockery of things that are holy. His anger is kindled when he sees children made in his image falling away, rebelling, indulging themselves. So, here's what you've got to get in your mind. I know this is all quite complex, but it's absolutely vital if we're going to make any sense of the Bible. Right, here's what's going on. God, if you are a child of God, if God has adopted you into his family, yes, he will discipline you, and no, he will never condemn you. God's condemning anger towards you has been absolutely absorbed in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
When God's anger is kindled towards me, he never once puts his finger on the hell trigger. He's never even tempted to. Everything that I deserve, the condemnation I deserve, Jesus took upon himself. The innocent man took the punishment that I rightly deserve. God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. I like the way that Ray Ortland puts it. He says, the cross removes God's condemning wrath. It does not remove God's disciplining wrath. Condemning wrath sends a sinner to hell. Disciplining wrath prepares a sinner for heaven. This is God's design. The word disciple shares its root with the word discipline. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's to be disciplined, to be trained, to be made more like Jesus. This is what the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, this is what he says himself. Ready? Revelation chapter 3. This is what he says. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So, does Jesus love you? You learned that in Sunday school, right? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So, Jesus loves me, and he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, your response to that could be to say, Well, my God would never do that and leave this church and find one where they'll never tell you this stuff. Or you can rip these parts out of your Bible. Most of us will bristle and want to push back because we're kids and that's what kids do. Jesus says your response should be to be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous. And repent. Take all of those things that kindle God's anger and grief. Lay them at the feet of the cross where they've been dealt with. And turn around. That's what repent means. And walk in a new direction. Just cycle through some of those things that could be on that list of things that kindle God's wrath. And don't do it for your wife or your kids or your boss. I know you've got that list right up in the front in bold type. Forget that. God's dealing with them on their terms. When it comes to you, what are the things that are leading you away, not just leading you away from fullness of life, but kindling God's anger, making Him want to discipline you, to train you out of that? The fullest description I know of this whole dynamic in our relationship with God. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. This is where it speaks of God's fatherly discipline. So listen to this. You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. He's like, this church, they've forgotten who they are. They need to remember they're not slaves, they're sons. So as God's sons, they need to remember his exhortation. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are approved by him. Don't let what I'm saying now make you lose heart. That's not the design of God in any of this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
If God wasn't disciplining you, he said, it'd be like you were just bastard kids that are thrown out with the slaves. Who cares about them? I've got no good designs for them. I don't care if they turn out to be anything. That's not how God treats you because you're not illegitimate children. He says, furthermore, we, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Hopefully we did. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, those earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his what? Holiness. Now here's the thing. He says, verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me quote Charles Spurgeon again. He, he puts it in colourful terms as ever. <laughs> he says, Other children may run about and be on vacation. They may wander into the woods and gather the flowers and do pretty much what they like. But God's own children have to go to school. This is a great privilege for them. Although they don't always think so. Children are not often good judges of what is best for them. No doubt we would like to play hooky from school. We would be very glad to put away our school bags and quit school and go out by ourselves and wander at our own sweet will. But our Father, our Heavenly Father, loves us too much to let that happen. Because we are His children, He must therefore train and prepare us for that great destiny which awaits us in the future. That's what's going on. This is the key image we need to have in mind when we're thinking about the discipline of God, particularly if this is a challenging idea or a disruptive idea. The key image we need to have is for the, the, the image of, of not, not an abusive father who abuses his power and hits us because he's had a bad day, but of a loving father who trains us. He's training us. He's, he's, his design for us is to be Jesus Christ. And his dream for us is to be changed from one degree of glory to the next. And because he's a good father, he knows that that will require discipline. There is a world of difference between the discipline of a father and the abuse of a tyrant. I just had an image pop into my mind, like an analogy, and this might be terrible, but let's see how we go with it. Yeah. So, a lifetime ago, Definitely more than a decade ago, I, uh, I got into uh, lifting weights. And it was because my brother, older brother, became a personal trainer. So he set up at our house, we were all still living at home at the time, so it's more than 15, man, maybe it's 20 years. Anyway, he had all this equipment and he was like, I will train you for free. And as a kid who grew up the puniest kid in class, both skinniest and shortest, I was like, my time has come. And so what I did was I took him up on his offer as well as go with a high school friend of mine to an actual gym and I double timed it. Now, here's, here's, here was my experience of it, right? When I trained with my older brother, because he was an actual trainer and my older brother, he destroyed me. Uh, he would do, what are they called? Uh, supersets and drop sets and uh, 
some of this means nothing to anyone, but it, just, it was just the most rigorous training. And when we were lift, when I was tr- like lifting weights, he would be in my ear, like yelling at me. And when I looked like I couldn't do any more, he would come and spot me and just like do the gentlest kind of help to try and get me to do the last curl rep or whatever that would utterly destroy me. When I went with my high school friend, when I was doing my weights, he would be on his phone. So, which version of the weight training do you think made me stronger? It's not a rhetorical question. Because some of us would prefer the... Some of us would prefer the just leave me alone, yeah, you, you check Facebook for a bit. All right, obviously, the thing that trained me and made me stronger was the guy who was forcing me to get stronger, was the guy who was exhorting me and encouraging me, sometimes yelling at me, but all the time doing it for my good. I mean, there was just no comparison, and I very quickly gave up on the ladder. It wasn't really doing anything for me. This is what we're talking about here. This idea, the, the idea of the gymnasium is a Greek idea that Paul's very familiar with. The gymnasium is where people go to get trained, to become disciplined. Now, here's, here's, here's a little thing that's worth thinking about. We don't have time to go into this very deep. But if, if you start reflecting on your current experience right now and where you are feeling challenged, where you're feeling some resistance, maybe where you're enduring suffering, then it's worth asking the question, to what degree is this God lovingly disciplining me? And the big elephant in the room for all of us probably is global pandemic, which is going on for years and years. Is this God disciplining us? Have you thought about that? Like, if God is really in charge of everything, then what's going on right now? If it turns out, and this is a shock to some, if it turns out that Dan Andrews is not, in fact, enthroned in heaven, but simply an earthly ruler used by God to achieve certain purposes, then what is God doing? What is the one who is actually in charge doing? Is COVID-19 God's discipline of us? Is it the result of his anger, his disappointment, his grief at us? And I'm going to hand the mic back to David now to finish this. No. I don't know. I actually really don't know. I tell you, I'm wary of anyone who answers that question emphatically with either yes or no. COVID-19 is God's judgment on us. I know this because I, don't, I just do. Or no, God would never do that. He's just he's busy hugging lambs. Either one of those answers, I get, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'd much rather be less certain, which is a dangerous thing to be in our day and age. What, you don't believe something 100% without any question? Outrageous. I don't know, it could be. It could be God's discipline of us. It would make sense If God's anger, like just disciplining anger, is kindled against, and you read this in the book of James, kindled against Christians who are fat and wealthy and rich and not generous towards poor people, I could believe that's, yeah, 
he'd probably want to be disciplining most of us. If God's discipline is exercised just to shake us out of the cruise control that we get into when we live a comfortable, prosperous, secure existence, then yeah, it makes sense. I don't know how you apply that principle on a global scale when you're talking about all people suffering as a result of it, not just people who deserve it. I'm comfortable to leave that in God's gracious hands. He's just got capacity to understand these things and purpose them way beyond the scope of my imagination, let alone intelligence. But I want to give an emphatic yes or no either way on that one. Remember Jesus' words in Revelation 3, as many as I love I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What does that mean? It means if you're a Christian, your voice shouldn't be used to say, this is God's condemnation on same-sex marriage. Your voice should be used to repent of your sin because you're a sinner. And all of the sinners aren't just out there. The one that God wants you to be concerned with is here. It's you. global pandemics, the death of loved ones. I mean, I got a screw in my new tire the other day. It punctured my tire and meant that I couldn't go and play golf. That is a tragedy. And that should lead me to repentance. Why? I don't need to say, well, God put the thing there, and it or even, oh, Satan, Satan's always getting at me. I've got a rash, and I've got a... What? Neither of those things need to be true. I don't need to deduce the hidden meaning of this thing. I just need to fall on my knees and repent and say, God, please use this bad thing to make me look more like your son. Sorry if I'm kind of wandering around a little bit in this, but David warned you that I was uh, <laughs> on my last legs and this is what happens. I'm pretty sure this is really important stuff, though, if we're going to understand who God is and our experience in this, in these shadow lands. The point of all of this is, yes, to understand our experience of, of life, but I think ultimately the most important thing that David wants us to know from this psalm is, is, is for us to construct for ourselves the right picture of who God is. That's like the most important thing we can do in this life, is to have a right understanding of who he is. He's revealed himself to you in this book. And he invites you to get to know him for who he is on his terms. What was that thing that someone once said, you know, God made us in his image and we returned the favour? That is so true. We, all of us here, to varying degrees, have constructed for ourselves a God of our own making. And so I think this is a call back to know who God is as he's revealed himself to be. He's not a domesticated deity. He's not a tame lion. This all reminds me of uh, the tame lion thing, is a reference to Chronicles of Narnia. Reminds me of this. And if you haven't read them, for the love of God, please read the seven Chronicles of Narnia. Read them to your children, to your husband to your grandparents. Just read them. You can do a psalm each day and then a few pages of the Chronicles of Narnia. Goodness sakes. I've been going on about this for a decade now.
In the Chronicles of Narnia, you have this, the story of these children who get into this magical land of Narnia. In Narnia, the, the, the animals talk. There are naiads and dryads, and it's very influenced by Greek mythology. And the Jesus figure in Narnia is a lion named Aslan. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, spoiler alert, Aslan dies in the place of the sinful Edmund and then rises again. I think you'd get the kind of imagery. But before they ever meet Aslan, the children are talking to these couple of beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, about what it'll be like to meet Aslan. This, who, who they, don't, they don't know who, who he is, but they know he's the king. And so Lucy, the youngest, the daughter, uh, the, the youngest sibling, of the Pevensies, she says uh, to the beaver, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, (laughs) said Susan. If you were sitting in my kid's bedroom right now, I'd be doing the accents and everything. I do a, a pretty good young girl, but uh, not publicly. All right, so, ooh, I'll do this bit. Ooh, said Susan. <laughs> I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And that's the point. God will not be domesticated by us. He will not be turned into this avuncular old man in the sky who just wants to give us sweets at Christmas time. He's not safe. Aslan is not a tame lion. But he is good. He's a good father. And he looks at each one of us with the deepest possible feelings of love and he has in mind for us a destiny where we have been shaped to be more and more like his son. So, the product of all of this, the experience of God's anger, his discipline, his rebuke, the product of it, because he is perfect and and absolutely good and right and just in all that he does, the product of it is exactly what he purposed it to be. Sometimes I discipline my kids with the best intentions and all that happens is that things get escalated and I get sinful angry instead of righteously angry and they end up fearing me rather than loving me and nobody gets any better for it. My good designs fall flat all the time, ask my kids. Not so with God. Every act of discipline that he commits to bears its fruit. This is where it leaves David. This is where I leave you. You go to the bookends of the psalm. This is the product of God's discipline. Verse 1 to 3. I will exalt you, Lord, because you have lifted me up have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from, those among, uh, from among those who go down to the pit. Verse 11 and 12. You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth, an image of repentance. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. That's God's will for us this morning. Let me pray. Father, 
please provide us today and every time we open your word, provide us with a true picture of who you are. Forgive us for making you in our image or projecting onto you the kind of father that we never had or whatever distortion that we've applied to you. Lord, forgive us for that. We actually don't want it. We want truth. We want reality. We want, we want high definition image of who you are and what you're like. So call us back to your words where you show us who you are. Call us back to knowing Jesus, who was your perfect representation on this earth. And yes, Lord, we even dare to pray that you would use every means possible to train us to be more like your son. Save us from our inherent desire to be simply comfortable or prosperous or lazy. Save us from condemning ourselves through wanton sin. Save us from eating and drinking condemnation at the Lord's Supper. Save us from kindling your wrath and anger. Lead us in right paths for your namesake. Lord Jesus, keep us close to you. Enable us to make all of life all about you. Be gracious to us, Lord. Though the sorrow may last for the night, joy comes with the morning. Thank you for loving us in spite of us. Thank you for your promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.